0: We're in Luke chapter 16. We're going to be reading verses 19 through 31. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby under a chair. If you uh, do not own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, Or if you just want to use it this morning, that is fine as well. Uh, We are reading this morning the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, we're going to jump right in. We're going to read the whole thing together. And something that we kind of practice here, just a small bit of liturgy that we practice together, is after the reading of God's Word, whoever reads it says, this is the Word of the Lord. And then all of us together say, thanks be to God. So let's practice that this morning together. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, this passage of Scripture has caused problems for about 2,016 years. And has caused many people to, at a simple reading of it, come to draw many different kinds of conclusions. In fact, combined with the passage that we read just preceding it last week, you have two errors. Some people would read Luke 16, 1 through 18, and in that they would come to some kind of perverted idea that we call the prosperity gospel, that God is about you getting whatever you can get. I mean, Jesus even said, right, use unrighteous wealth to gain friends. And they would kind of pull that out of context and say, well, well, Jesus wants you to to be rich, whatever it takes. Go after it. Go get it that would be an error and and is not what that passage is speaking about if you weren't here last week go listen to the podcast on the flip side of that and in the total opposite direction just by coming to the very next passage of scripture some people would 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 go down a path that they would call the poverty gospel and and so they would call this a reversal theology and so here's here's the question just for your thinking is this passage Luke 16 19 through31 simply reversal theology What do I mean by that? Well what I mean by that is is this simply live life well end in hell live in pain enjoy great gain Is that what this passage is teaching? No absolutely not but some people would draw, that conclusion. They would also take this parable, mind you, parable, and they would try to use it to build a whole thought-out doctrine of hell and eternity. And that's not what this parable was intended for. Is it about hell and eternity? Yes. Is it Here for us to somehow from this draw all kinds of different uh, symbolic and allegorical things that we can try and construct some kind of idea about hell, no. And now, if you want to have a conversation about hell and what that might be like, we need to look at all of Scripture, not just this one passage. And we can do that. We're not going to do that today, okay? Not going to do that today. But this passage is talking about two things, uh, namely, so it was bad enough that last week I had to talk about money, right? And, and I told you how difficult that was for me to talk about. So add insult to injury for me this morning because now I have to talk about money and hell, all right? So, so that's kind of where we're at this morning. And, and really, uh, Jesus is dealing with this rich man and he's drawing a contrast between this rich man and a man that he calls Lazarus. Uh, something that's interesting is that in all of the parables that Jesus taught in every canonical uh, gospel, no one is named except for Lazarus. This is the only character in any of Jesus' parables that is actually named. That has led some people to say, well, this must be a true story. Well, it, it doesn't mu- it's not a must. It's possible, but we don't know that, and so we still have to treat it as a parable. And as a parable, his name then has meaning. Because the name Lazarus means one whom God helps. Let's just go look at this again real quick because I think this said that uh, there was um, a beggar laid at a poor, man's, er, a poor man named Lazarus. A beggar laid at the rich man's gate covered in sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And the whole desired there connotates that it never actually happened right? So he sat there pining for the scraps and never got them is what the passage is saying. So um, let's think about that. The one whom God helps? I mean, just at looking at it at face value, it doesn't seem like, I mean, I'd hate to see the person who God doesn't help, right? I mean, if this is the guy whom God helps, I'd hate to see the person whom God doesn't help. And what we learn from this just simply at the get-go, is that if you really want to know whom the one is that God helps, you need to look at life with a bit of a wider lens. So try fast-forwarding about 50 billion years and tell me whom God helps. I mean, just from looking at the parable, I mean, who does God help 50 billion years in the future? It's, It's Lazarus, isn't it? And so, what we need to understand is when it comes to wealth, when it comes to living life well or living in pain, that the Bible is, is very nuanced. Uh, we can look at Scripture, and from Scripture, we, we know that just to say, live well, end in hell is, is not what the Bible says, because there are those in the Bible who were blessed with great riches, and it was a blessing. Think of Abraham, think of Job, Esther. Um, Philemon in the um, New Testament, Theophilus, whom this letter is written to, I mean, Esther. There are many whom God blessed with great wealth, and, and, it, and it was a good thing. But, but then there are also those that were rich that, that weren't righteous, like this man and many others in the rest of the Bible. The, on the flip side, God in the Bible doesn't just say, well, Live in pain, enjoy great gain because Proverbs many, many, many times talks about people who are poor because they're lazy or they're drunkards or they're addicted to substances. And so it's not enough to simply go, oh, I know what this is. So, you know, you've got to share your be if you're gonna be wealthy, you gotta share your wealth, and if you do that, then it'll be okay. Or it's not simple enough to go, well, if you suffer in this life, then then you won't suffer in the next life. That that's not what this is saying. It wouldn't be a true reading. The whole of scripture is much more nuanced in its discussion about both money and eternity. And and so we can't just come to this and draw simple reversal theology here. So What we need to remember is that a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text, right? So what does that mean? It means context, 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 right? Real estate is location, 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 location. Exegesis is context, 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 context. And so let's draw some contextual clues. Well, if we go back just to Luke uh, 16 verse 13, we see Jesus say something very interesting. What does he say? After talking about uh, the original parable of the dishonest manager, Luke sixteen thirteen says, Jesus says, "No servant can serve two masters." No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says this phrase, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot do it, right? So here's the deal. Um, at, At some level in your life, if you had two bosses, at some level you could serve them both, as long as they are in agreement, But anyone who's ever been in a very bad management system knows that uh, anything with more than one head is a monster, right? So um, that's why in the church, Jesus is the head, not the elders. Praise God, okay? And so um, we need to understand that in that, if you know, you've experienced this, that once those two bosses are not in agreement, suddenly now you're in a place where you have to decide which boss are you going to serve, right? Right? It's going to be whichever one is going to end up serving you best, right? And so even in that situation, it's true. You cannot serve two masters because eventually one of them is going to win out, right? It's going to win out your devotion. And here Jesus is talking to a a single-minded pursuit and a single-minded devotion to God. It, it, It speaks back to the Shema of the Old Testament. Um, where the Israelites would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. right? And immediately after saying that, they would go into the first and greatest commandment, which is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. In that, in what God was calling us to in the first commandment, in what the people of Israel were calling themselves to and reciting that creed of the Shema over and over and over again was this single-minded devotion in pursuit of God. And it was countercultural. Why? Because in their day, everyone else were polytheists. They had many gods. And, and when you were a polytheist, you could not afford to give All of your devotion to one God. Why? Well, if you were a merchant from Corinth and you were traveling to Rome to sell your wares, you would have to, before your journey where you would get on a ship and travel across the Mediterranean Sea, you would have to go to the temple of the God of the Sea and you would have to use some of your wealth and some of your money and your resources to buy a sacrifice to make a sacrifice to this god of the sea so that you would hopefully actually make the journey all the way to rome now we know that that isn't really a god and they were just wasting their time but in their minds they couldn't afford to give devotion to only one god why because once they got to rome They would have to go to another temple and make another sacrifice to a different God that would help them actually sell the things that they came there to sell. And they're going to have to make the journey back home. So they still couldn't even give the rest of that to that God. They'd have to save some for the God of the sea again because they're about to get on a boat and go back home. Do you follow what I'm saying? So what did that mean? It meant that their hearts had to be divided in devotion to many different gods. And God comes along and he says, I am enough for you and you shall have no other gods before me. What was he asking for? He was asking for a, a single-minded, single-hearted pursuit and devotion to him. And so for us, we, we may not, I mean, may I don't know, I haven't been to all of your houses, but hopefully you don't have some kind of shrines in your house where you're making idolatrous false sacrifices to other gods. I, I doubt that you're doing that, but we do the same thing whenever our hearts are divided in our devotion and desire, and when we begin to replace our desire for God as ultimate for desire of other things, we de-God God in our hearts. We de-God God in our hearts. And what is that? That's idolatry because what are we doing? We're beginning to covet other things. Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul actually says it bluntly. Covetousness is idolatry covetousness is idolatry and here Jesus points to money because he's talking and we know from the previous text he's speaking directly to his disciples and to the pharisees and we look again for another contextual clue at verse 14 of chapter 16 we see the pharisees who are lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him Jesus and verse 15 and he said to them you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your heart for what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of the, of God and so Jesus speaks directly to money why because the Pharisees were lovers of money and 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 Jesus says in their love of money what are they doing they are justifying themselves now in the book of Luke, this idea of self-justification is a huge theme. Luke keeps coming back to it again and again and again. We already looked at it when we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and there was the lawyer that Jesus was speaking to, remember? And seeking to justify himself, right? And, and, and so Luke keeps pointing at these people That Jesus is coming into contact with, and over and over and over again, they're trying to justify themselves. Now, to talk about self-justification, we need to talk about justification. So what is justification? Well, justification is the legal act of God that God makes declaring ungodly people righteous before him. So it's an act of God by which he declares ungodly people righteous. That is justification. So what's the opposite of justification? Well, the opposite of justification is self-justification, which is a misnomer because there really is no such thing. It's a label for something that does not exist. Because there is no such thing as justifying yourself. You must be justified. And when you are justified, God makes it so completely that it's just as if I had never sinned. Right? So it's a legal act by which God declares the ungodly righteous. But they don't deserve it. I know that's the point. That's why we call it grace. That's the very point of justification, is that it's undeserved. He's he's making, declaring the ungodly to actually be righteous. But what are these people doing? They're trying to circumvent God and justify themselves, which they cannot do. But how are they trying to do it? Well, Jesus connects it to their love of money. So what's happening here? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, who sought to justify themselves, thought that what Jesus called their unrighteous wealth in Luke 16, 1 through 18. What did we say that was? It wasn't like just ill-gotten gain. It's just cash. It's just, there's true riches which are in heaven and there's untrue riches which are here and it's just cash. And so they thought that their cash, their assets, what they had, what they possessed was an indication of God's favor with them. Well, brother, I... You see my nice new robes that I got, I, God, is, God is good, he's good to me, can't you see? Right, like, like it's this idea that somehow what you have, what you possess or your bank account or your 401k or what car you drive or what kind of status you have in the community is, is, is an indi- somehow an indication of God's favor with you. Can I just wreck your world? It's not, it's not. The other side of that is also true. Just walking around in, in, in poverty on purpose is, is not an indication of how holy you are either. Money doesn't have a soul. It's not good or evil. But the love of money, Paul would say to Timothy, is the root of all kinds of evil. Why? Because with it you can fulfill every lust of the eye, every lust of the flesh, and every pride of life. So when you love money, it will lead you down a path to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And here, you may find yourself even justifying yourself because of what you've been able to gain or get in money or with your money. And so here, the Pharisees, they are trying to show their status with God in comparison to their cash. And they see, see how much God likes me? And the Son of God, who is God himself, co-equal and eternal with the Father, says, "Um, I know your heart, (laughs) and what's in your heart is an abomination to me. Right? This love of money and self-justification. It's interesting, we we must not forget who Luke is writing to. He's writing to, as it says in chapter 1, Oh, most excellent Theophilus. And, and we draw from that an understanding that this guy that Luke is writing to, Theophilus, was a man of great means. And so it's no wonder that Luke is constantly pointing him back to people that Jesus came in contact with that were using their wealth a, as a way of justifying themselves before God rather than resting in the only justification that, that is true, and that is the justification of of God, Amen. So let us we've got the contextual clues. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and his disciples. It's a warning for his followers. It's an indictment against the Pharisees. And so now we, we jump in and we begin to see the contrast of the rich man and Lazarus. As much as the Pharisees saw riches and wealth as a marker of God's favor, they also saw misfortune as a sign of God's displeasure. Remember John nine two and three, where even the disciples are walking past a blind man and they see a blind man and they ask Jesus this very odd question. They say, "Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents?" Like it was a it was a it was an expected uh, thing that Jesus was going to actually give them an answer of one or the other, but Jesus doesn't, does he? In verse three, what does he say? He says, "It is so that God." God's works may be displayed in him, right? And it was this like mind-blowing moment for the disciples where they, they finally figured out, oh, oh, you mean, you, mean, you mean just having wealth isn't an indication of God's favor and, and just suffering is, is, isn't an indication of his displeasure? Oh, like everything we've been taught is wrong. And here we are 2016 years later and we all still struggle with that, don't we? I mean, you, you drive a beater car around and come into some cash and is you get a new car and you pull up to that first stoplight next to someone else who is in their beater and there's a little something of the peacock that begins to go off in your heart right and and if that person who's driving that beater next to you is a young person and they start to rev your their engine a little bit you might be so inclined to just smoke them right at the green light right can no no just okay never mind If you can't say amen, say ouch, all right? So what the truth is, is that we still struggle with this. Inside, in our flesh, in our sin nature, we still believe in karma over the gospel. We think do good things, get good stuff. Do bad things, get bad stuff. When bad things happen to people, they must have done something bad. When good stuff happens to people, they must have done something good. And that flies in the face of the gospel because the gospel says the bad kids got the good stuff. And that the stuff isn't even an indication of what's going on because the true stuff isn't the stuff you can see. It's the stuff that you can't see. And the bad kids got the best stuff. And the best stuff is the blood of Jesus applied to their lives. And in Christ, all the riches of heaven are contained. And the fullness of the glory of God is found in Christ. And it's by looking at him that all the mysteries are unlocked not not our stuff. So what was Jesus saying just in the previous passage about our unrighteous wealth and gaining friends? He said, use, use the stuff you got to gain friends and win them for the gospel. So that when you die, they'll receive you in the eternal dwellings. What was he saying? He's saying, he's saying use what God has given you, the resources that are in your hand that he gave you that are his, Psalms, Right? Anyone own a pair of jeans? We talked about this last week. No, you don't own a pair of jeans. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it. It's all His. He placed it into your care and said, now use it. Use it for what? For His glory. For His glory. So take the influence, the power, the the authority, the resources, the cash, the assets, the whatever you have, the beater or the flashy car, whichever one it is, and use it for his glory, right? That's what God says. Why? Because it's just stuff, and it's his stuff, and he placed it in your care for, to be used for his glory, amen? But here we see that that Jesus gives this picture of the rich man and of Lazarus, and it's a contrast. Someone who had a lot in this life and someone who didn't. And part of what we have to see in that is that the having and the have not having are not an indication of God's pleasure or his favor for anyone. We look at this, and the other thing that we need to understand is that because earthly goods and riches are not a good indication of God's pleasure... It's another reason why we shouldn't covet them. And Romans 1 and 2 tells us that sometimes when someone gets everything that they want, it's not actually an indication of God's pleasure with them. It's actually an indication sometimes, not every time. Remember, it's not, we can't use this always, but sometimes it's an indication of God's judgment against them. I'm going to give you all that you want and the rope to go hang yourself with. And so we can't just look at people or look at circumstances and and when something looks like it's going to turn out this way or that way, go, well, that, that has to be God. We, you don't know that just by looking at that. You have to dig deeper. And we shouldn't, Proverbs talks all the time about not, not uh, coveting The the wicked's possession even there there's this understanding the wicked are going to have stuff don't covet it why because them having it is oftentimes God's judgment against them and in this case it is true. So we have the rich man. Notice he's dressed in purple. There were only two ways to make purple cloth at this time and both of them were extremely, extremely expensive. One of them came from a shellfish and you'll remember in the New Testament that there is a woman in the church of Ephesus named Lydia who got saved who was a seller of purple, right? And and so what we know from that is that she must have been involved in some of the most high class society in that city because she was the one who held what was needed to make purple. And if you wanted to justify yourselves in people's sight, if you really wanted people to think that God loved you and you had all that going on, you wore purple. It was a way of showing wealth and, and that's why so many royal people, it's why the color purple is, is, is associated with royalty because it was so expensive to make royal uh, to make purple uh, cloth. And so here we see he's wearing purple, and so he may even have a a position of status in the community, may even have some kind of, of authority. But Jesus goes a little further, and I want you to see this, that it is with tongue firmly planted in cheek, because it doesn't stop at purple. What does it say? It says he also was clothed in fine linen. Now, why does that matter? Because Jesus is basically saying, and in case you wanted to know, even his underwear was pretty fancy. Everyone likes fancy underwear, right? And, and so you could laughing at me. I had to study this out all week. That's literally what's going on here. It's like, yeah, the rich man, he wore purple. And if you really want to know, he even had fancy underwear. And so all everyone's kind of snickering to themselves when they hear this, right? They don't quite know where the story's going. They're like, wow, he must really be rich because it's one thing to put on an outer garment that everyone can see and you want people to take notice of. It's another thing to be so rich that you can pay extra for fancy underrods, okay? So um, not only that, but he feasted sumptuously every day. Now in Jesus' day, uh, when you ate, you were lucky if you ate meat, on a weekly basis, maybe for Sabbath, you would be able to have some meat, but, but primarily throughout the week, most people were not wealthy enough to, to eat meat every single day. And so when they got to eat meat is the times of the festivals and the feasts that God commanded his people to have through the Old Testament where they, it was literally a command of the Lord to slaughter some meat and eat it because it's good, uh, praise God. And so, um, but this man, it says he's feasting sumptuously every day. And so it's this picture of this man who is so rich, he's so wealthy, he has, he has, he's at such a status and place of his life that he has no care for anything except to eat, drink, and be merry. And so he does. I mean, why not? And then verse 20, we have the original contrast. And he says, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Remember, one helped of God. And he's not just poor, but he's also covered with sores. And back then you didn't have clinics that you could go to. There weren't uh, you know, special hospitals for the poor. There wasn't some place that you could just go to get care. And so what people used to do is if you had someone you cared about who was very poor, and especially if they were very needy and had physical ailments and couldn't work for any reason, they would literally carry you to the the, the door of the rich. And there was this understanding that, you know, because God had blessed you so much in this life, you should, by virtue of that, take care of those less fortunate. And, and it was it was an understanding. And so here we see that this man is laid at the gate of the rich man, which again is an indication of his wealth because most people didn't have gates, but this man is so rich and so wealthy and his estate is so vast that he doesn't just have a door he has a gate and here Lazarus is laid at his gate and the hope is that this man might take pity on him might share some of his wealth and care for his needs and what we see from the text is what he doesn't he's not helped he's given nothing It says that Lazarus wants even just the scraps that would fall from the table. Now, the thing you have to understand, and even what Jesus goes to next, talking about the dogs licking his sores, uh, is that when Jesus told this parable, there was no H-E-B with a dog food aisle. Right? Right? And, and if you've read your Bible, you remember the story of the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus wanting something, and Jesus is like, what do I have to do with you? And, and she says something very interesting to him. She says to Jesus, but but master, teacher, even the dogs get to eat the scraps from the table, right? And And, and so how the dogs were fed is they were fed the scraps from the table. Literally what Jesus is saying here is that Lazarus was salivating over the dog food. I guess that's how hungry and needy he is that, that he would he would even want the dog food. Just previously in the prodigal son, we heard Jesus say something similar about the prodigal son, that he, he wanted even the, the pig slop. It, it's a similar idea. The scraps, the leftovers, the stuff that's all thrown together that normally goes down the garbage disposal, but they would throw out to the dogs as their dog food. And Lazarus is is wanting that, and and the indication is is that he's not even given the dog food. He's not even given the dog food. It's an indictment against this rich man because there was an expectation that he would care for him. Well, it's no wonder then that he ends up in Hades because he's a jerk. But there are some people that are jerks that might end up in heaven because God justifies the ungodly. But what happens when God justifies you is you become filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to change your desires. And as God changes your desires, hopefully you become less of a jerk over time. And what happens as a result of that is what we call good works. And so this is what we need to understand. Is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And not by works, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, lest anyone should boast, right? But as it says in 1 John 4.20, anyone who says that he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. So you can't say you love God but then treat people badly all the time. It doesn't go together. You can't say that you love God and you've been justified by Him, but then there's no fruit of that in your life. It it doesn't work. In fact, Luther himself, who was the champion of sola fide, faith alone, said that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And in that, he was talking about good works. You see, the, the elect of God are saved unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. Thus, though good works will never bridge the gulf between man and God that was formed in the fall, remember the chasm in our story here, good works are a result of God's saving grace. And this is what Peter means when he admonishes the Christian reader to make his calling and election sure in 2 Peter 1.10. It's not simply... The, the call of the gospel is not only believe, it's believe and repent. It's believe and repent. And good works need to follow those who follow the Lord. Amen? And so here we see the beggar died. I have a missionary friend that says that's what's going to be uh, posted on his tombstone. And then the beggar died uh, because all of his life has been spent asking people to fund the ministry. I feel like that sometimes. Um, But here we see the beggar died. And what does it say? It's beautiful, isn't it? It says that he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The original translation is Abraham's bosom. And this isn't simply the... uh, title of a location. It's literally an understanding that the angels carried him to the place of honor at Abraham's side. Literally Abraham with his arm around him caring for Lazarus in the afterlife. Okay, Uh, Remember at the Last Supper there was the disciple whom Jesus loved and it said that he rested his head on Jesus' bosom. Now this is not an indication of some kind of uh, problem with the binary sexuality. Sexuality of man. Okay, that's not what it's talking about. In that culture, it was uh, prominent that when you ate at a table, especially at a feast of that time, you would sit at a table that was literally just inches from the ground, and you would sit on these mats, and you would recline with your back to each other, and you would take the different pieces of unleavened bread, and you would dip them in different pureed meats and fruits, and sometimes you might even reach over and feed it to a friend. Oh, taste this here. This is good. And so remember that at this time in the Last Supper, Jesus is saying one of you is going to betray me and everyone's like wait what us uh, you know is it you no and peter says to john the one that jesus loved ask ask him and it says that he he basically it's this picture of him leaning back that he's next to jesus at the place of honor and he leans back with his head on his bosom as it were near his arm and and he asks him a question it's a place of honor and here Lazarus' seat is standing at the place of honor in Abraham's bosom. To help you understand this, um, I used to live in Zimbabwe, Africa. And... um, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, is very common that uh, when you walk down the road, and you walk a lot there, uh, if, you, if you spend time with any of the native people, you have to walk a lot. And as you walk down the, lo- down the road and you're engaged in conversation, it would be normal for a grown man to, to grasp and hold another grown man's hand. Now, in our culture that's looked at a little differently, right? And you might get socked in the face if you try and do that to me or anyone else this morning. It's just not culturally accepted, right? But there it is, and and it means nothing except for friendship, right? And and different cultures have these different things, and we need to understand that that's going on. Uh, My wife is um, continental. She's Portuguese. I am English and Irish and Norwegian predominantly, and so our family cultures are different, different, and when I first got to know my wife's family, it was like walking into the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, okay, and at the dinner table, everyone's in each other's business and up in each other's faces, and kind of the expected distance between two grown people is like 18 inches, where, where I grew up, it's more like 36 inches, Okay, and, and so it's a different culture, and you begin to understand that when we read the Bible, we need to understand the different culture as well, and that these things signify something. So Lazarus is brought to Abraham's bosom. He's placed at his side. Abraham is literally seen as caring for him, and it's this place of honor. And suddenly his name starts to make a little more sense, doesn't it? The one whom God helps. We see here he's being cared for and will continue to be cared for and will experience the greatest true riches for eternity into the future. That's why I said, if you really want to know whom God helps, you need to look forward about 50 billion years because that's what we have to look forward to. And so here he is at the place of honor, but the rich man is different. We see that the beggar died. It doesn't say anything about his burial. He was maybe even thrown into the Valley of Gehenna which is where we get some of the imagery from hell. It was like the, the dump site of that day, constant burning and places of, of torment and, and poverty. But the rich man dies and he's buried. Imagine a state funeral with a glass coffin that goes down the road and everyone watches. And just what a, what a great man that was. And where does he end up? He ends up in Hades. Hades, Hades, whatever. It's a reminder to us of 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 when Paul will say, in talking about the hope of the resurrection, he says, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And here is a man that his whole hope was in this life, right? Question number one of New City Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? That we belong to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what matters in the face of eternity is not how you lived, but who you belong to. And here we find that this man had everything in this life. And when it comes to eternity, he's absolutely bankrupt. Makes you wonder if he thought that that was where he might actually end up. Probably not. Probably not. I found there are very few people that actually think they're going to hell. Jonathan Edwards said, Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends on himself, self-justification, and his own security, he flatters himself in what he has done or what he is doing or what he intends to do that he will eventually gain heaven. And it's true. We, we do. We flatter ourselves and we think, well, you know, I'm I'm trying. I'm I'm trying real hard. Or, you know, I, I you know once I get to this place in my life, then I'll do this or that or the other thing. Or, you know, I I've I've really tried really hard in the past to be a good person person can I just remind you it's not the good don't get in it's not the good people that go to heaven it's the ungodly people that go to heaven that God has justified through the death of his son those who say well I'm I'm a good person watch out because the good aren't the ones that get in because you can't get in unless you're willing to be helped of God oh hello Lazarus You can't get in unless you're willing to be helped of God. What did Jesus say? I came not for the well, but for the sick. I came for those that know they need a Savior, not for those that think they're getting along just fine on their own. C.S. Lewis said that when it comes to eternity, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, Without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You'll just go, oh, wow, how did I end up here? Then we get out of the narrative in verse 24 and into the dialogue. The rich man looks up and somehow he's able to see Abraham and Lazarus. What does he say? What does he say? What does he say? Anyone looking at it? Father Abraham. Father Abraham, he's playing the race card. I, Father Abraham, I'm Jewish. Father Abraham, you remember, I'm one of your descendants. What, what is Jesus showing us here? He's showing us that it's, it's not blood, it's not your blood that gets you in. It's his blood. It's, you weren't going to get in just because you were an Israelite. And you're not going to get in just because you go to church. You're not going to get in just because you were raised in church. Kids that are here this morning, your mommy and daddy's faith is not enough. You have to believe in Jesus Christ for yourself. You have to be one of those who also is justified by God. And so we see him say, Father Abraham, he's trying to appeal to that race and religion card, and it's, it's not there. And then what does he do? I mean, the audacity, right? He doesn't address Lazarus. He addresses Father Abraham because, you know, this is the kind of guy that only deals with upper management, even in the afterlife. And, and so he says, Father Abraham, and then what does he say? He says, send Lazarus. I remember, isn't he the guy that was at my gate? He can go do it. Boy, come, go. Will you go dip your finger and, and bring me some water to cool my parched tongue? I mean, even here we see the arrogance and the pride. and Him, again, what is he doing? Trying to save himself, try to make a plan. Well, I'm sure we can come to some kind of agreement. Let's negotiate this a little bit, Right? And, and Abraham says something very interesting as well. He says, you received good things, indicating that his privilege should have provided him the opportunity to acknowledge where all that wealth came from and who it actually belonged to. And he didn't. And he's being judged as a result. Don't miss that in Luke 15, we saw a prodigal son who wasted his father's wealth. At the beginning of Luke 16, we saw a dishonest manager who wasted his boss's wealth. And at the end here, now Jesus is showing us a man who wasted his own wealth. Well, wasted the wealth that God gave him, right? And the implication here... In Luke 16, 10 through 12, remember it says that if you aren't faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will give you true riches? And the implication is that the who in that is God. And he's saying, no, I will not. (laughs) So if you won't be faithful with the little that God has given you in this life, what makes you think that God is going to give you riches in the next life? Who is the one who is actually helped of God? We keep being begged to answer that question as we see Lazarus's name. Matthew Henry's commentary says that this parable was meant to wake us up. Because now we get into the discussion that the rich man has with Abraham. He says in verse 26. Besides the fact that you got your good things in, in your life. And Lazarus bad. And now he's being comforted. Besides all this. What does he say? There's a great chasm. Now. It's not just simply a great chasm, but what does it say about that great chasm? It says that the chasm has been fixed, hasn't it? The chasm has been fixed. Do you see that in the text? What does that mean? It means it's been placed there. It's not something that just has happened naturally. It's been placed there. That there purposefully has been a chasm placed between paradise with Abraham and Hades where the man is in torment. It's been placed there. And what does he say? So that, notice what he says first. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. Now remember what we talked about good works. Remember that we talked about that when you're justified by God, when you believe, when you come to faith, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and good works are the result of good fruit in your life. Remember that that is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of yourself. It comes from salvation. And I don't think I'm pushing the text too far to say that Lazarus is there at Abraham's side going, it's okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. But there's a chasm that's been fixed that those who would go from there to him cannot. But not only that, what does it say? That those who would want to pass from there to here cannot. Which means what? You only got one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Eminem didn't even know what he was rapping about. Lose yourself in the music, the moment, the music of what? The music of the gospel, the moment of the cross, of Jesus' life freely offered for you, for your sin, so that he could be buried, so that he could rise. And Paul would say that he died for our sin, but he was raised for our justification. It just keeps coming back there, doesn't it? just keeps coming back there. So there's no traffic between there. There's no second chance. There's no getting out of it. And notice that even in Hades, in Hades, I don't know how to say it, whichever way. Either way, in hell, let's just call it hell because that's what it is. In hell, this man is still not repenting. I mean you would almost expect him to look up to see Lazarus to see Abraham and his arm around him and go, "Oh my God, my God, my God, what have I done? I got it so wrong. I thought that what I had was an indication of your pleasure. I justified myself because of my love of money and I missed it. Oh, I was so wrong. God, I'm so sorry, Lazarus. I'm I'm sorry I ignored you. I I passed you every day and I left you at the gate I, None of that. <laughs> hey, you. Quick, water, please. Come, quickly. Oh you, oh, you can't? Oh, you can't be my waiter. Maybe you can be my errand boy. Please send him to go to my family's house. I mean, the arrogance. This is what we need to understand. There's, there's no one in hell kicking and screaming that they were placed there against their will. And there's no repentance in hell. But there's plenty of torment. And even in his torment, he does not repent. He just wants relief. Even there, we have to speak to ourselves a little bit and say how often, how often when we go through things in our lives that are difficult, we really don't want God, we just want relief. But this is what we would find, that if we would go to him, to God, to Christ, not only would we find relief, but we would find rest, we'd find rest for our souls, not just in the life to come, but even in this life. How many of you need that kind of rest? The call is to come to Christ this morning. There's no repenting. Revelations 22 verse 11 says, Let the one who does wrong do wrong still. Let the righteous be righteous still. Speaking into eternity, that there's this understanding that even in the face of eternity, even though every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of all, it still does not mean that they will repent. And there's no repentance in hell. And so... He continues to try to send Lazarus to his family, to warn them. And what does Abraham say in verse 29? They've been warned, right? They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And notice the rich man tried to correct Abraham's theology. No, no, Father Abraham. (laughs) I, I know better than you, father of the faith the one whom God chose and called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a place that he would not know and told him to offer up his son as a sacrifice and you were willing even to sacrifice him, believing that God would even raise him from the dead if it was necessary. No, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you how it works. If someone would come to them from the dead, they would repent. And Abraham takes it a step further because he's basically saying, Let him visit them like Jacob Marley from Scrooge, right? From like a ghost. If a ghost would show up and say, listen, repent, don't you understand? I've come from the dead. Your brother sent me and he's saying, repent. Abraham goes a step further. Notice what he says. What does he say? Even if someone were to what? Rise from the dead. Even if someone were to rise from the dead, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they still will not believe. What does this tell us? It tells us that what the Bible tells us about itself, that everything that we need for life and godliness is found in this text. What did the apostles preach? They preached the Old Testament. They preached Moses and the prophets, the only canon that they had, but they preached it with Jesus being the fulfillment of it. Do you know what the best commentary on the Old Testament is? The New Testament. Because the New Testament is the teachings of the apostles teaching Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so even for us this morning, we need to understand that we don't need a sign to believe God. We have everything we need to believe him right here. And let me tell you something else. Jesus didn't raise from the dead to be a sign for you to believe. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sacrifices were being made for a temporary propitiation of sin, a temporary absorption of God's wrath towards sin for people. But it was always temporary. And how did you know that it was temporary? Because when you slaughtered that animal, it didn't come back to life. Every drop of blood that was poured out, and that animal didn't come back to life. God was saying, "More blood is required. More blood. More blood. More blood. More blood. More blood. More blood." But when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a testament to what He said on the cross when He said to Telestai, "Paid." in full. And when Jesus came back from the dead and he rose from the dead, what was God saying? No more blood required. It is finished. It's enough. And it's why Paul would say in Romans 4.25 that Jesus died for our sin. Why did he die? He died for our sin, to take our penalty. But why did he come back to life, Paul said, and he rose for our justification for all who would believe God will declare righteous based on the work of Christ alone and not by any works lest any man should boast so who is the one whom God helps the one who believes that God helps without faith it is impossible to please God but we must believe that He exists and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Whom does God help? God helps those whom believe that God helps. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that today as those who call on Your name and call themselves Yours, we come to receive from You And even in just a moment, we come to a table and you don't offer us the scraps. God, you offer us yourself. In the bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus, in the wine, which represents his blood spilled out for us, we are reminded that we are those who have been helped by God. We cannot justify ourselves, but we we rest under the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ and believe that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ and it's only by his grace we stand. Father, let us stand in that grace this morning. Let us sing and rejoice in that grace this morning and let us receive from your table this means of grace and reminder of all that you have done for us. Forgive us, God, where we have tried to justify ourselves. Forgive us where we have loved money or possessions or sex or power or position, where we've de-godded you in our hearts and desired something more than you. God, I pray that this morning the flame of the first love of our heart would be rekindled with love for you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you stand with me this morning as we sing and worship? Um, Brian and Kendall are over here with the bread and the wine. And feel free as we sing and worship to file your way. If you're a believer, you're welcome this morning to come to the table and receive communion. God bless you as you come.